This is Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs Wise, where we interrogate racial narratives in our place, space, and time of Richmond, Virginia, the former capital of the Confederacy. I'm from the Okay, Radio World, we are back. The General Assembly just ended. We're all catching our breath. We survived. We are here. And I'm really excited for the guest here today in the studio that we have to give us the rundown down low on everything that happened this session. We have Mallory No Pain with Radio IQ. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. And we have Roberto Ralden with VPM. Thanks. Happy to be here. Hey. So they're going to give us the rundown. They've been covering the GA. I've been following them like crazy on Twitter. Whenever I wake up from my naps or get out of meetings, I log in. And these are the reporters that I like to follow to get my news and retweet. And here today to kind of help me commentate, give me some information about the advocates that have been supporting the legislation. And we have today Jace Hatcher with Virginia Interfaith of Public Policy. Is that right? No. No. It's fine. <laughs> Tell the audience, how do you actually say your organization's name? I'm just like, Interfaith, Interfaith. That's actually great branding, that we don't even have to say your whole name. You all are right there around. Basically, just say Interfaith or VICPP, but you tend to like get caught up on the PPs. Um, it is the Virginia Interfaith Center for Public Policy. Great. And I'm really excited to introduce to everybody Ms. Kalia Harris, who I've been organizing with the last few months and just been incredibly impressed. So I am honored that she has decided to come on and join us here at the Race Capital team. Um, so welcome to Clear Harris. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks. All right, so let's kind of go ahead and, and get started. I really want um, the listeners today to hear about what's been going on in session. So I promise everybody that a little bit later in the episode, we're going to get down to more of the nitty gritty of some of the uh, more talked about legislation, but I do want to make sure we just kind of share some of the outcomes of what has come out of General Assembly. Um, so I know right here in Richmond, there were some talks about casinos happening going on. Uh, Roberto, what's been happening with casinos in Virginia uh, Assembly? Yeah, so uh, the Virginia General Assembly legalized casino gambling in five localities, Richmond, Norfolk, Danville, Bristol, and Portsmouth. Um, originally, the House and the Senate were sort of at odds over the role of the Pamunkey Indian tribe, mm -hmm. um, whether they should be given preferred consideration or um, sort of leave it up to the localities to decide if they should get preferred consideration. Um, so and what does preferred consideration mean? Basically, it would be hard for the locality to choose someone besides um, gotcha. the Pamunkey tribe, okay. um, that they have to give extra weight um, to the tribe. Mm -hmm. And the compromised version of the bill basically says that Norfolk has to um, give preferred consideration to the tribe, um, whereas Richmond may. Um, that doesn't mean that they're sort of not, they don't have a leg up because they still, under the bill, have to give substantial weight mm -hmm. um, to about eight criteria, one of them being minority-owned businesses, which obviously the tribe would fall under, but other um, groups, other people of color would also fall under that. Mm -hmm. um, it does help the tribe that they have already released plans um, for uh, Plain Casino, both in Richmond and Norfolk, so they're kind of got a leg up on pretty much anyone else. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But 
I mean, were, were you at the, the community forum that happened in Southside? You know, I wasn't. Kalia, were you there? Or no, Jace, were there? Not for the casinos. Not for the casinos. So I wasn't, I didn't happen to be there, but I know, I guess a week or two ago on the front page of the Richmond Free Press was a woman who had driven into town to tell her story at this public meeting here in Richmond. Um, I encourage everyone to read the article on the Richmond Free Press, but basically, um, it's anti-blackness that we're seeing not just here in Richmond, not just in the urban, rural. I mean, it's coming in every community, including the indigenous ones. So anti-blackness is global. We know this, but sometimes that inclusive thought, that equity um, portion of as we are looking at the narrative, we have to include that anti-blackness is always in the room. Right. Um, so as we are discussing the Pamunkey tribe and you're hearing the commercials, has anyone hear the commercials on the radio um, right here in Richmond? It, it's about, actually about that inclusion that you mentioned, Roberto, of the jobs and the contractors of actually minority um, businesses that want to be included. And that was those commercials were playing heavy during the General Assembly. So we are keeping an eye on that. Now, do the localities, are they just allowed to do casinos or? Well, yeah. So okay. they are allowed to do casinos. Um, there is a little more flexibility than there was initially. Mm -hmm. um, initially, they wanted um, localities to have a referendum by November of this year. Right. Um, which for Norfolk, they were already sort of in the process of approving that. So they mm -hmm. were like ready to go. Um, but the city of Richmond is not. We are always traditionally um, late when it comes to bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. um, so they got a little bit of flexibility. City council is supposed to decide on the 23rd um, whether or not, March 23rd, whether or not they want to um, go with trying to do a referendum in November or November of next year. Mm -hmm. um, but they still have to put out an RFP process. Um, I would say, like, just because the tribe is the only um, – development group to put out a proposal doesn't mean that like there's not other people waiting in the wing mm -hmm. so they got to put out the rfp they got to see who's out there that wants to do this where they want to do this mm -hmm. um roberta so. i gotta be honest um just hearing about this process takes me back yeah. i'm looking at Kalia. i hear rfp and i'm just like uh <laughs> i hear one person yeah. that's available yeah. for the rfp yeah, i'm like, like uh where, I'm are the, where are the competitors I'm hearing a bill that looks a lot like something that happened in Norfolk that also is a trigger for me of, yeah. you know, legislation that is specifically geared towards certain localities and, and calling them tools of revenue building and, and community building. But that is definitely something that we will keep a watch on. Um, what about school funding and education? We have a lot of numbers for you. Oh, great. If you want them. Yes. <laughs> so this just wrapped up Thursday, March 12th. Okay, great. Yeah, mm -hmm. the budget process. Um, public ed, uh, we're looking at about $1.5 billion in new spending mm. over two years. Okay. Virginia does its budget in two-year cycles. And um, I think the big sort of tagline is that we're, for the first time, back above pre-recession levels of spending. Wow on public education. So that's 2008, and that's adjusted for inflation. Um, so a lot of money for public ed. Right. Um, right. Is that something that you are hearing just as a reporter? Is, are, are teachers happy about this? What? I mean, not speaking obviously as a monolith for teachers, but um, 
a lot of teacher groups who lobbied at the Capitol um, want more mm-hmm. than, than what happened. Okay. Um, so, for instance, the final budget includes a 4% raise for teachers over two years. Plenty of folks would say uh, inflation is 2% a year. So this isn't really a raise. We can call it a cost of living adjustment. We're just keeping up with inflation. Right. Um, of that $1.5 billion of new spending, the vast majority of it is just keeping up with mm-hmm. inflation, uh, enrollment of new students. We have to spend more on education every year because we have more students coming in, and that's the way the economy works. So um, while, yes, there are lots of people who are happy we're back up to where we were before the recession Mm -hmm. there are plenty of other folks who are saying we're not doing enough fast enough Mm. um to do more requires really fundamental shifts that didn't happen this year and we can mm-hmm. dive into that more if you want to i would but... love to hear a fundamental <laughs> shift i'm giving oh, her that man. look right now i live for a fundamental <laughs> shift now. well okay i mean so first of all the most important thing to understand about virginia budgeting is unlike i mean if the federal government wants to do a lot and spend a lot of money it it gets to go into debt to do that mm-hmm. um localities uh, for instance, take Henrico County. They're building a bunch of new schools. They get to also go into debt to do that. They issue bonds, which mm-hmm. is debt. The state doesn't get that option. Right. We don't have that. The states don't have that tool. They have to constitutionally, most states, have a balanced budget. So anything they spend, they have to have the money already. And so spending huge amounts on education requires fundamental shifts in collecting more revenue. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And that's not on the table. You know, that was not on the table for lawmakers this year um, because the biggest revenue collector the state has is the income tax, Mm -hmm. um, the state income tax. And our state income tax is about 4%. Mm. And the highest income bracket kicks in oh, I should have looked this up, but around, I want to say $17,000 a year. So if you make, I, I, if you make twenty five thousand dollars a year, you're paying the same same state income tax level as someone who makes one hundred and twenty thousand dollars a year, all the way up to two million dollars a year. So wow. that that's our state income tax system. Um, and if you want to spend a lot more money, say on education, you you kind of have to go back to the drawing board there. And that that was not something that was on the table this year. Interesting. Thank you so much, Mallory, for bringing the numbers, the (laughs) facts, and a little bit of math for us to all to do and look at. Um, So let's talk a little bit about housing. Roberto. Yeah. Um, So there was some bills that were specific to Richmond and then bills that weren't. Um, One of the bills that was specific to Richmond that I thought was really interesting was SB 708. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was Jennifer McClellan's bill. that requires 12-month notice um, from housing authorities before they demolish public housing. Mm. Um, As someone who is uh, very well acquainted with RRHA, I'm sure you know where this is going. I can't Um, wait, Roberto. Yeah, so RRHA actually sent a letter um, to the governor uh, after the bill got to the governor's desk um, and protested, basically saying HUD's regulations are already good enough and that this is just going to be more burdensome. 
but the governor didn't care seemingly um and well, he signed it goodness. he signed it anyway um so now housing authorities like rrha will have to give people a year's notice right. that they're going to demolish the homes that people live in i can't wait to invite omari back on the show to have more conversations about this but i know that um kalia and i are in a very active group chat mm-hmm. of conversations when this first came up and it was like wait he's doing what Damon Duncan, the CEO. Like, of, is this real? I needed a receipt to make sure. Right. And we had receipts. And we had receipts. So we had the letter, and we were hoping that we were they were going to have it public. And RRHA CEO, Damon Duncan, who has been highly criticized in the community and has seemed to be working outside of his board um, a, a few times. And, Roberto, was this one of the times as well he was working outside of his board? or With the RRHA, with a letter to the governor? Correct. Um, I'm not sure, actually. I believe I read, and somebody, please correct me uh, in the DMs or email, I'm sure you will, if I get this wrong, but I believe that he said that he was not able to consult the board because of the timing issues. Things were happening too quickly. My response to that was, um, we've had about 60 days of General Assembly. This bill was not a surprise. It was flying. It was going pretty well. I mean, some some conversations about the length of time of the notice was going back and forth, but that wasn't a huge con- contested bill until all of a sudden the CEO that has been criticized publicly for targeting um, people in the community not maintaining these units being filled. There has actually been accusations to say that they are no longer renting out units to make the properties look blighted in order to get demolishment approval. Mm-hmm. So these are these are dangerous allegations, but these are also things that all the receipts line up. And with this type of letter and entitlement and not board approval from the CEO, it it actually is looking pretty scary for those residents, right? And so that's why we really appreciate the people like Omari Al-Qaddafi and all the legal team that's working over there with Virginia Poverty Law Center and LAJC. They have a whole housing legal team over there. I always forget the name, but thank you all for doing that work. Um, and please keep watch about what's happening here in housing in Richmond, Virginia. Let's talk a little bit, uh, let's keep it over there with you, Roberto, about transit. There's some conversations, I'm getting tagged all over about some transit conversations yeah so i mean there's always a bunch of transportation projects in northern virginia um given that our listening audience is not in northern virginia i don't cover necessarily those big projects closely but one of the things um that's going to be a big deal here in the city of richmond in central virginia is um delegate dolores mcquinn had a bill for the central virginia transportation authority yep um so what that's going to mean is, one, uh, some taxes are going to go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it raises the gas and sales tax um, in Central Virginia. I think the gas tax goes up by about $0.07, cents, um, which on top of the raise in gas tax statewide, um, Central Virginia is going to be looking at about $0.17 cent raise um, per gallon in gas tax. Wow. Um, and there's going to be some sales tax. It's a little bit smaller. But all of that money is going to fund this Central Virginia Transportation Authority um, that's going to sort of divvy up this big pot of money among different localities as well as for different things. Mm-hmm. Um, so the majority is going to go to roadway maintenance, um, paving, repaving roads. But about 15%, um, I think it's estimated about $25 million is going to go to GRTC for public transit. Mm-hmm. Ideally, 
um, this would have been some new money um, that was going to help maybe expand public transportation in Central Virginia. But mm -hmm. the bill also allows localities to pull their funding by up to 50% um, for GRTC. City of Henrico just um, put its budget out and they are keeping their funding steady, saying that they want to see what this how this sole transportation authority is going to work that seems rational yeah very rational conservative approach um whereas the city of richmond uh mayor lavar sonny proposed his budget uh last week mm -hmm. um he is already choosing to cut funding to grtc by 50 percent went from about sixteen thousand or 16 million excuse me to uh about eight Okay, well, and when I say I've been tagged and my DMs have been flooding from transit advocates, keep it coming because I think that's something that we should all watch. Public transportation here in Richmond is something that has always been a civil rights issue for decades. It's something that we've heard from Reverend Ben Campbell. I mean, churches, um, interfaith has been in that policy conversation forever. And if we're not understanding how the economic tie, the survival tie, the independence tie is related to public transit, then what are we doing? Mm -hmm. And if you are a listener to Race Capital, you understand that we have been highly critical of the pulse and what that has meant to GRTC riders across the city. Um, just shout out to All City Art Club that by coming on the show and talking about um, where they are painting in the city their bus stops right there don't have benches. So because of their work and just bringing art to the city and, and opening their minds and their hearts, they've been able to bring benches to some of these bus stops. But that shouldn't be the case. That shouldn't be how these bus stops are receiving trash cans and benches and just getting seen, right? When we have a Pulse route and Broad Street that is top of the line and now we're just losing more money with this budget. And so, so yeah. sorry, go. No, no, no. I was just going to say something I think that y'all should watch out for and everyone in the city of Richmond should watch out for if you're concerned about um, sort of equity and the distribution of uh, access to public transit. Mm -hmm. Part of this bill, GRTC is going to have to submit a regional transportation plan that's going to have to be approved by this authority. Um, so there's not really a timeline yet, but if you're concerned about equity and access to transit, you probably want to keep an eye on this regional plan that they're going to have to approve. Yeah. Thanks so much, Roberto. This is why you got to keep in touch with journalists, y'all. They know, know all sorts of things. All right. Um, <clears throat> Mallory, one of the conversations I was following pretty closely, obviously, was the mayor. Oh, I was going to guess you were going to say marijuana. <laughs> oh, you got it. You got it. Uh, yeah. So talk a little bit about marijuana reform. And I promised all the listeners we are planning an entire episode on this uh, with the ACLU and go deeper in a conversation specifically about the social equity that's coming. But I would love for Mallory just to give a rundown about what happened in General Assembly. Okay. Well, I got to be honest. I sort of hopped on this at the end of session. I did not follow along. So if you know anything that I am saying incorrectly or, or don't have right, jump in. I gotcha. But the bottom line is that marijuana, uh, Virginia has decriminalized, not legalized, marijuana. Mm -hmm. um, I think for most people, uh, a good way to understand that distinction is it's not like Virginia is going to have a marijuana market. We're not going to have dispensaries for recreational users that you can go in and buy. So like um, selling um, and distributing, still a crime. Uh, what will be different is that possession of small amounts 
is not something you're going to wind up in court for anymore. Um, instead, essentially, you get like a ticket, kind of like a traffic ticket, a $25 civil penalty. And that amount is um, an ounce or under. Right. There was a long, hard road to get there, y'all. Um, but Marijuana Justice, the ACLU Virginia, and a lot of coalition partners worked really hard to get that bill to be as least harmful as possible. And it started with only a half an ounce. It started with $50 of another bill. Um, there was actually another penalty of public consumption of a $250 fine that was also included, but we got that one out. And that was a really important part to get out because we saw specifically in DC that when they decriminalized it and they had that penalty, that in 2016 when they, they decrimmed it, the racial inequities that went up and that all of the arrest and all of the civil penalties of public consumption were black and brown people. I mean, like all of them. So currently the data um, about, so Virginia's population is about 20% black, um, about half of arrests for possession are of black Virginians. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the current data. We're talking about 30,000 people in uh, in a year. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, that's obviously one of the impacts. Right. Another impact is uh, fiscal, financial for the state. The state spends about $100 million a year mm -hmm. arresting and prosecuting for um, uh, marijuana, marijuana possession. possession. Um, so that's another piece of the pie. Right. That and that's really interesting because uh, for me, when we hear that, that also means that maybe some of these other folks don't need an increase in their budget that have been enforcing that law, right? Because they're going to be having that money still right there, but yet we're still seeing ask an increase of law enforcement. I, I love that you pointed out the number of how many people were arrested because looking forward, it's how are we now reinvesting and restoring those communities and those individuals that have been targeted for now the, the current laws we just changed have been in place since 1979. Follow the money. Um, it's going to be really interesting moving forward how marijuana takes over the new conversation of budgets, of equity, of jobs, of everything that you hear in any other corporate conversation. It's going to now come up as marijuana, y'all. I had a clarifying question, Mari. You said that under an ounce is the $25 ticket. What happens when it's over an ounce? So uh, over an ounce, uh, if you possess over an ounce with intent to distribute, that's still a felony. How do they determine How to determine <laughs> intent to distribute? Great question. I don't know the answer to that. Right? Police I discretion. Think that's something we're going to be keeping an eye on because in know. the law that passed, the bill that passed, intent to distribute is still a felon it's still sorry intent to distribute with under an ounce is not a felony it's it's a misdemeanor of some classification but intent to distribute is still a crime um but if you have under an ounce there's a presumption that you don't intend to distribute it does not say in the law that if you have more than that there's a presumption that you are but there's certain you know if it says one but then not the other i think um, right. So marijuana justice and ACLU, you'll probably hear, are, are still sending a couple of demands and asks for this last piece to the governor, whether he asks it or not. But it's going to be important for this um, presumption clause and things that we look and understand of what that means. So continue to follow along. We're going to put out a Know Your Rights 
um, at the very end to understand what marijuana is doing. I just want to remind everybody that marijuana possession is still illegal, especially if you are black. The collateral consequences that are still going to come with this, the ability to just say you were stopped. If, if they smell it, they can still stop you, y'all. Because they could, they can write. Th we tried to put that in there, the fourth, a new, a stronger Fourth Amendment right, to uh, remove that policing tool of smelling marijuana, but it's still there. Um, I mean, just to add, I mean, this has gotten a lot of attention, rightfully so. But also this year, Virginia is uh, passed a very big expansion of its small medical marijuana program. Right, which is incredibly terrifying, Mallory. I'm going to tell you why because since they are expanding what that means is that they're going to be prepared and ready and already saturated the entire market for distributing and that means when recreational marijuana comes about there's not going to be any room in the market for us and that's exactly what they want and if you've been watching and listening to these legislators senator marsden actually was up talking about this very specifically saying and, and the legalization discussion is fine but i think what we need to, to realize is we need to have a full medical program in place before we go into the legalization recreational model but taking a look at it certainly would would not be harmful we cannot allow uh, adult legal use to take over the market. It should only be medical that is legal. And we have to listen to these narratives, y'all, because you know if it's only medical, that right there creates an inaccess, an inequity. Who can get prescriptions? Who has medical health care right now to even go to a doctor to ask right. for a prescription? And this is why marijuana justice exists, right? We still have time to come in and, and shift these laws of Virginia of a brand new industry that's going to create an entire new corporate system to further distance in the middle class, right? All right, moving on. Y'all got me going. You got me going, Mallory. But thank you for bringing up that last point yeah. about the medical stuff. Please watch the medical stuff and remind yourself that Virginia Normal is half legalization, half medical. And is that a um, conflict of interest? Ooh. Ask yourself. All right, keep it going. Uh, we are going to say anything happened in the mental health? Um, did y'all see any big mental health bills or conversations? I'm shaking my head no. Sorry, I, sometimes I forget. I'm over here mm -hmm. shaking my head no. Mm -hmm. Um the I think probably the biggest component of mental health is in the budget, and I have not had time to to delve into that yet. Okay, um, as a clinical social worker, oh Roberto. Yeah, so in the budget, um, there was one of the things that I saw is there is permanent supportive housing um, for people with serious mental illness. I think that they want to increase it by about thirteen hundred people mm -hmm. um, to to provide that permanent supportive housing access for people okay. who have serious mental illness so it's not necessarily people who um maybe go see a therapist once a week but people who have debilitating illness right smis yeah definitely so we will keep watching on that but that was something that i was also hearing we were talking about um i'm pointing back at mallory about taxing about income revenue a, a lot of mental health advocates were saying like hey what about us this is why we need to be here because we need a little bit more of that of that too well and the two biggest parts of virginia's budget are we talked about education but the second one is health care it's medicaid and medicare right and you want to talk about mental health care it's medicaid right definitely that's, that's the social safety net for those with with mental health issues um and so it's another huge piece of the budget puzzle yeah um yeah 
definitely behavioral health. And I, unfortunately, I was just on the phone with a friend of mine earlier this week that was calling me having problems with their child. And I said, well, at this point, it looks like somebody in your family needs to be poor enough to be on Medicaid. That's the only way to actually receive services that are going to treat your child. Otherwise, it's going to be too expensive under private insurance. That conversation isn't for another day. Shout out to ABSW, Association of Black Social Workers, doing the work. Chase, let's go over to you. And I saw you all around the General Assembly. Did you know? Did you know? Tell us what you were working on. Yeah, so um, most of my work with the Virginia Interfaith Center uh, surrounds migration policy. Um, I'm careful not to use the word immigration because I'm not someone who experiences or is affected by um, the current administration's immigration policies. And so I'm definitely not a leader on those issues. I'm part of coalitions with leaders on those issues who are directly affected by that. Um, and so a lot of the things we were working on when it came to policy were the top priorities of the undocumented and largely immigrant community here in Virginia, which were driver's licenses for people, regardless of their immigration status, mm-hmm. and also in-state tuition mm. uh, availability to um students, regardless of their immigration status. I'm really happy to have Kalia here because she is part of a network of students who really made that legislation happen. So shout out to them. Shout out to VIA and also Virginia Student Power. And my colleague, Janelle Limonomato, who was essential in getting all of that passed. So. Nice. Congrats. So tell us about driver's license. Oh, driver's licenses. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, just to set the stage, if you live in Virginia, as I only have for the past two years, um, you know, the 14 years that I lived prior was overseas, and I used public transport and had no issue. But as soon as I got to Virginia, I realized I had to get a driver's license. There was no way I could get around without one. Mm -hmm. And when I started working um, in this field, that was people's number one concern, is that uh, one of the two reasons that folks get picked up by ICE frequently is, you know, um, obviously really serious felony convictions and or it's really minor traffic accidents or being pulled over for a broken taillight. Mm -hmm. So people are incredibly fearful to drive and that sets them up to not be able to participate in the economy in the way that other people in Virginia do. And um, it's just a justice issue. It's a human rights issue. Um, Having the same taking the same road test, requiring the same insurance, all of that, that's totally equitable. All that folks are asking for is their ability to even obtain a driver's license. Mm. Um, And so there was a lot of conversation about this and a lot of pushback, Mm -hmm. a whole lot of pushback. And in the end, we got a bill, which now is called a driver's privilege card, um, and is not a full license. And there are some issues with it, and advocates are still working very hard to ensure that we can fix some of these problems, the main thing being access to privacy or private information, yeah. um, hugely important. And the other thing being that the card itself has some identifying markers um, that will set people up to potentially um, be discriminated against either by law enforcement or whoever else can pick this card up and look at it and realize it is probably likely this person is undocumented that they have this specific card. Mm. Um, so we are still working really yep. hard to ensure that we can get some of those things changed. Um, yeah. It's like the red A on your driver's license. If yeah, that... well, someone said it's a scarlet letter, essentially. Yeah. 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 Um, well, thank you for all your work. I know literally like everybody was still, I know, as I was following the journalist um, to the 11th hour, you were still down there and and 
reporting from from the GA about what was going on. So please keep us updated on that. Um, I want to hit really quickly as well as because I'm part of Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project here in Richmond and any updates on any police reforms or bills or legislation that you all saw? I don't have anything for you on that issue. Okay. Well, so the only thing that I saw that was criminal justice related, mm -hmm. um, the only thing that I really followed because I don't normally cover um, criminal justice issues, but um, something that happened here in Richmond and had sort of ties to Richmond City Hall, which is what I normally cover, um, was a bill from Delegate Jeff Bourne um, requiring local governments that supplement their Commonwealth Attorney's Office to also supplement their public defenders. Mm -hmm. um, so the Richmond Public Defender's Office launched a campaign for pay parity last year. Um, their internal data showed that some prosecutors right out of law school uh, were making as much as a public defender in Richmond with 10 years of experience. Wow. Um, and that sort of inequity comes because locality, since I think about 2008, have been able to subsidize uh, or supplement um, one or the other or both, mm -hmm. um, which are their main source of, of income and, and yeah. revenue is from the state. But the locality can put a little extra on top, and the city of Richmond gives about $7 million extra to its Commonwealth's attorneys, to prosecutors, but $0 um, to, to public defenders. Yeah. And I think, like, the issue there is sort of – it really does get at the heart of, like, inequity in the criminal justice system because the sort of underlying issue is that you don't want people to get um, – to be penalized, essentially, just for being poor and right. having to rely on a public defender. Um, those people also deserve adequate representation. And if you have a public defender's office that is understaffed um, or under-resourced yeah. or underpaid, yeah, um, that might not happen. Right. And uh, that's – and public defenders get that reputation, right? I mean, it's like, well, I had to get the public defender. How how good is that one? But I want to give a big shout out to Justice Forward, Virginia, that did a lot of work to uh, push this to make sure they get paid. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to our episode with the Commonwealth Attorneys race this past August, where we invited the candidates on and we invited Ashley Shapiro from Justice Forward, she talked a little bit about the work that they do and public defender's office. So tune into that and realize why they should get paid. Yeah. And just real quick, I, uh, just to wrap that up, um, the bill actually failed. Oh. Um, Delegate Jeff Bourne's oh. bill. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, sort of on the, oh, on the happier hey. side, um, Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney just released his budget and it did include 350,000. Mm -hmm. Um, the public defender's office says they need a million for pay parity. So he's saying 350,000 sort of compounding over the next three years to get them to a million. Okay. It's not ideal solution, but, Better than nothing, um, I guess. he is recognizing this as an, an issue of criminal justice reform and is trying to tackle it with a limited, you know, locality budget. I will, I will see that. I appreciate that. So Torian was able to pass a bill that required localities to report the use of force. And that is what Richmond Transparency Accountability Project has been asking and demanding for since about 2017 right here in Richmond City. So now that the state is requiring that, we are going to be watching how Richmond Police Department, the mayor's office is going to be implementing that and making it a transparent way for us the public to also see the use of force data which is the point of this transparency bill that was brought forward by luke torian so we will be watching about that i want to jump to you mallory um about 
please say minimum wage. I was I was going to. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was going to. Go for it. All you. Um, this is huge. Yeah. Uh, so Virginia's minimum wage is tied to the federal minimum wage. Anyone know what it is? Seven twenty-five. Seven twenty-five. It's been that way for more than a decade. Um, so here here's what lawmakers passed uh, beginning in. Uh, January 2021, so next year the minimum wage in Virginia will go up to $9.50. Following year, $11. Following year, $12. So that, that's like 2023. Um, after that, lawmakers have to reconsider. They have to vote again. Um, if they approve another increase, there's a path forward to $15 okay. by 2026. Um, but there's that, you know, a, another round of approval in the middle there. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely $12 by 2023. Okay. Um, is yeah. this for everyone? Um, no. Okay. But it is for more people than it has been in the past. Okay. So um, not included. Who is it not for? Okay. Um, farm workers. Okay. Uh, au pairs. Mm. Uh kids working part-time kids 18 and under working Mm, part-time um and the tipped minimum wage isn't impacted i don't know what the tipped minimum wage is 325 i mean yeah when i was doing it you know when i was 17 it was like two dollars something yeah it was 250 is that for servers it's two dollars and 13 cents okay so tipped (laughs) minimum wage isn't impacted um i think um who is included who wasn't previously included uh domestic workers home care workers um and um employees of small businesses there is not a small business exception Mm -hmm. which is often part of the conversation when you talk about raising the minimum wage yeah um so regardless of the size of the business you work for you're still included um we if you want we can talk about home care workers domestic workers farm workers the racial impact there Mm -hmm. These groups of people are jobs historically in the South predominantly done by black folks. Now farm workers, we're talking about immigrants, Hispanics, Hispanic people, excuse me. Um, And uh, traditionally, they were left out of the minimum wage. Yeah. Yeah. Federal and state level from the beginning. Right. Um, so I know that SEIU, it's a statewide union, has um, really championed this effort mm-hmm. to, um, to broaden who the minimum wage applies to. Mm-hmm. And so it was a big victory for them this year to get home care workers and domestic workers under the umbrella. Um, and then um, a big loss for advocates to not get farm workers under the umbrella. Yeah. And I will say, I think, you know, we're, we are ready for the fight for farm workers this next year. So I will just say that everybody is planning. You ready, ready. (laughs) She she just said, all I want to (laughs) say is that we're ready. It's true. There's been, I mean, there's been work done on the ground and for the last couple of years and shout out to LAJC for a lot that they do. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, there are people who are, who are ready, I think, to build that into something really real for an exception. So. Well, I appreciate you saying that because I know a lot of black farmers listen to the show specifically around the connection with the marijuana social equity. So I think that'll be a great Shout out black farmers. Yeah. Um, connect to you all with that effort. Thank you so much for everyone with that. Let's chat guns. 
Okay, guns. She said, okay. Okay, guns. <laughs> and you may recognize Mallory's voice from an, a previous episode where we talk about the work of Black Femme organizers and how she really lifted Jewel Jordan's voice around January, MLK Day, and the organizing that happened there. And so this is really just, I guess, a continuation to tell us what, what happened after all of that with the legislation. Um, okay, we can talk about legislation. I guess with guns, the first thing I want to do is talk a little bit about about the issue. Yeah. Right? The problem. Yeah, do it. Um, so uh, how many people died from guns in Virginia mm-hmm. in a year? Mm-hmm. Anyone got a guess? What we're talking what numbers we're talking about? Oh, no, I'm scared. Morbid thing to guess about. <laughs> I'm just gonna hold up. Okay. Um, uh, about 1200. Okay, about 1200 gun deaths in a year. Okay, anyone got a guess a percentage that's suicide? 2%. I feel like it's high. Two-thirds. Wow. Two-thirds. Um, the other one-third would be homicides, right? Um, and then, of course, mass shootings. Virginia Beach, we saw 12 people killed. Um, so when we talk about gun violence, I think one of the things that can get lost is what's the problem we're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and first and foremost would be suicides by gun. And so legislation um, passed creating what's called a red flag law, an extreme risk protective order. That's sort of the legislation that targets the sui- suicide issue. Mm-hmm. And essentially it allows um, police to go to um, a judge and say, um, we know of someone who is a risk to themselves or others and get a temporary order to have weapons removed from that individual. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's a big one. That is a big one. <laughs> that's a huge one. Um, um, in terms of... But I just want to say it, it's going to be important, too, for people not to resist getting help because of those types of restrictions as well. So, mm-hmm. But it is an important one to have there for protection. Um, not on the initial, on Governor Northam's initial list, but something specifically targeted to suicides is um, voluntarily registering for a do not sell list. So saying, I know mm. that I might be a harm to myself. Wow. I'm going to go to the state and say, put me on this list. Don't let me buy a gun. Wow. Um, I just want to put that in the note of any clinical counselors that are listening to this that might be something you could talk to your clients about um, keeping yourself safe and putting into your um, community safety plans um so in terms of um homicides i mean one of the the biggest uh determinants of uh future violence is a history of past violence so research shows one of the most effective gun control measures um, is uh, not letting someone have a gun if they have a history of past violence. Right. Um, and so we passed a law that says if you've got a history of domestic abuse or you're subject to a permanent protective order, mm-hmm. no guns for you. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. And so research shows that that's a really effective measure in reducing mm-hmm. um, for domestic exactly for domestic violence. Right. Exactly. Um, and that that is a that is a target. I because I'm always thinking about racial narratives, right, of who I see most often in domestic courts. And um, it's it's been a pretty big conversation in the black community about the gun legislation, gun reform, gun rights. 
and it's not something that I think I'm even ready yet to, to talk too much about, but I do know when we're talking about protecting women and protecting femmes, having this type of legislation is really important to keep us safe. Um, something that did not pass okay. is uh, a ban on assault weapons. Um, so that was a big thing on the governor's wish list when it came to gun control. Mm -hmm. um, research on the efficacy of assault weapon bans is is kind of mixed. Mm -hmm. um, so it the research shows it doesn't actually do much to um, stop what most of gun violence is, those numbers we talked about. Mm -hmm. But there is limited data that suggests it could reduce the lethality of mass murders. Okay. Okay. That makes sense to folks. Yeah. Um, but that did not pass, so that was shut down okay. um, in the Senate. And I know that's that's a pretty charged conversation, especially when we're talking about students and parents. Maybe was that – I'm not sure, but maybe that's something more following Mom Demand Action of how they feel about that. Mom's Demand Action did not support an assault rifle ban. Oh, wow. Uh, they didn't uh, – they didn't have a – I should say they did not have a position. A position. I got you. On an assault rifle ban. It okay. wasn't on their policy wish list. Um, a lot of folks feel um, like it's uh, – I already said what I said about the research being a little inconclusive about what it does. Mm -hmm. But I will say it is the legislation that fires up gun Owners. We saw more than 20,000 folks from around Virginia and the country at the Capitol with big old guns mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, fired up. And uh, most people that I talked to there that day mm -hmm. cited the assault rifle ban mm, Okay. as what they did not want. That's interesting. That's interesting. What can get people the most fired up, yeah. triggered, and that's not actually even... It's interesting what that signals, I think, to a lot of different communities that, you know, because I have friends on both sides of this issue mm -hmm. and um, someone who I know was out that day and I asked them, have you been at the GA any other day mm. or any other issue? And they they said no. Right. So I was like, you know, what that signals to me is that I'm not totally sure where you stand on things that affect me. Mm -hmm. I'm just sure on where you stand on things that affect you. Yeah. Um, so just something to think about. There was another issue that uh, a lot of folks were watching and hoping for. And I know some of my comrades here were looking at the Dominion bills about regulating them and paying more money and what that means and just the underlying narratives of Dominion's power here in Virginia, specifically over the Virginia legislations, legislators. A Roanoke Times reporter put a tweet out that I saw and it was basically talking about an argument after some conversations on the floor with Delegate Jay Jones and Senator Lucas about these Dominion bills. And it got contentious. It, it, it was a real conversation that you saw, not just between um, Republicans and Democrats, but even within Democrats. So Mallory, I'm going to just kind of look at you and ask to have a rundown about what, what was happening with Dominion and legislation. Um, so I've covered the General Assembly for five years. Okay. The uh, power that Dominion has at the state house over that time mm -hmm. um has shifted i was gonna say has shifted dramatically i'm not sure we're at 
the word dramatically quite yet. Okay. But it's certainly shifted um, from having a really t- tight hold mm-hmm. to certainly less control. Mm-hmm. Uh, the threads here are the desire to get on top of climate change. Okay. Clean energy. Yep. Renewable energy. Um, and you have that also bumping up against... Um, rate payers yeah. how much do we need to pay each month for our monthly energy bill and how does that in impact low-income folks right um so virginia passed something called the clean economy act it essentially lays the groundwork for virginia to go all renewable by the middle of the century mm-hmm. um so it, it puts those goals like 2050 uh i think the final legislation was 2045 Keep going, Mallory. <laughs> um, so that's closing coal-fired plants, ending the use of fracked gas, making it easier to get solar and wind on board, um, making our grid more energy efficient. Um, and so they passed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have uh, really progressive folks saying it's not enough, not fast enough. I feel that. I don't know anything about clean energy except that we need it. And I feel like 2045 is too late. And then you've got a coalition of folks, both Republicans and Democrats, who are saying, what's going to be the impact on energy bills? Yeah. Um, how much are Virginian, Virginia ratepayers going to have to uh, fork up to pay for this mm-hmm. versus how much is Dominion going to have to fork up to pay for this? I've noticed my energy bill has gone up in the last year already. So... I got questions, Mallory. Keep going. Keep going. Well, I don't I don't know the answer to them. Right. And that's part of what makes this so complicated mm. is that there is a, a complicated network of regulation. Yeah. And oftentimes, the only folks who understand it are lobbyists for Dominion at the Capitol. And that's why they've had so much control for so long. One of the reasons. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like a conflict of interest at all. One thing I learned at the General Assembly this year is that there's just not enough of us up there. And I say us as just not lobbyists. Agreed. <laughs> so anything else that you want to give on Dominion? or I could speak to what you just said. Oh, please <laughs> go. Speak to it, girl. Well, I guess let me just wrap up by saying the Clean Economy Act passed. Mm-hmm. Um, Dominion was in favor of it. Okay. Um, a, a big, important bill that would have restored regulatory oversight to Dominion mm-hmm. did not pass. Was that the Jay Jones bill? That was the Jay Jones bill, okay. and it was and it was a bipartisan bill. It was um, Jay Jones and Lee Ware, who's a Republican. Yep. Um, and so that that got shut down in the Senate in yeah. the Senate committee. I think that's when that tweet came out of Senator Lucas threatening to break Jay Jones's arm. Mm-hmm. Look. Senator Lucas don't play, y'all. Jay did not want that smoke. <laughs> All right. Um, but that conversation about Dominion and control, that puts us right here where we just had the last 13 months of Navy Hill, right? That was the exact conversation we were having, but at a city level. Um, we can con- 
And that's why it's important to not just follow city things, but also state conversations. Why, if you have any access to the General Assembly next year, please try and come. It will happen again. It happens every year. So reach out to the people that you know are involved and ask how you can get involved and still keep your job, but have your voice heard because we know it's hard to participate in this. Um, Well, let me just say what I I wanted to say real quick when you talked about access to the legislature. And I think people just totally forget this, but Virginia has a part part-time legislature. Lawmakers are in Richmond doing this work for a month or a couple months a year. Right. They are long days and it is a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of heavy, hard lifting in a short period of time that is not always accessible to folks. Yeah, it's not. So my big push, if you have an issue that you are really passionate about, the time is about in one month Go visit your legislator, email your legislator, email their LA, start finding the advocates and do this work over the summer and into the fall so that you can be ready and prepared for your issue come 2021 General Assembly. We have just a couple minutes left. There are five of us here. I cannot get out of here without... What's your privilege? What's Your Privilege is a segment of the show where we invite our guests to identify a part of their privilege and how they use it to disrupt the myth of white supremacy. I'm going to ask for about 30 seconds real fast. Um, And I am going to maybe give a little bit more time to my reporters because Kalia and Jace, you either have been here and you will be here again to talk about your privilege. But I I want to start out um, with Roberto. And ask hey what's your privilege so i mean i am a white presenting male uh just to start off um i mean i'm also latinx but that's not sort of what you would get if you just looked at me um but i think my my sort of biggest privilege is sort of what mallory was just talking about there um Mm -hmm. other people face time restrictions they could be fired from their job for going to advocate on certain issues in the general assembly whereas i get paid for it yeah um I don't have to sacrifice my time. I know advocates, I I talk to y'all, and I know you all sacrifice time, money, energy. Um, At least I'm compensated for a lot of that work. (laughs) Um, And I mean, there's also a power to just having a press pass, right? Like I get to stop someone in the hallway and I have to be like, all I have to say is, hi, my name's Roberto. I'm with the local NPR affiliate. And people like the majority whip for the new Democrats will like have to stop in the hallway and talk to me just because I say that. and I try to use that privilege as much as I can um, to sort of amplify the concerns from the community that I'm seeing. So when I'm at City Hall and talking to city council members or the mayor or in General Assembly, um, I try to take some of the concerns that I'm seeing online from activists, from people of color, and sort of ask those questions and get answers to those questions. Um, so that's yeah. how I try to use it. But I think you know, being a member of the media is a, a big privilege in and of itself. It definitely is because the General Assembly laws for press credentials as they are, Race Capital was not able to get a press pass and to have access to to those pieces. So that's actually up to the speaker discretion. But it's something that a lot of us are working on pushing for for a different type of access next year for press credentials. So thanks for bringing that up. Um, To piggyback off of Roberto said in terms of being a reporter, um, my privilege, and we've talked about this before, is the platform that I have, the audience that I reach, hundreds of thousands of people when I do a story for NPR, we're talking millions of people, and in the very busy day-to-day work that is 
covering news. Um, it can often, um, I can often lose sight of how important uh, the narratives I'm shaping are, the voices I'm choosing to elevate are. Um, and, and when you're trying to work fast and under pressure, um, those things are easy, they can, they can fall to the bottom. And so it's really important that I have people who are holding me accountable to that and checking me on that. Um, and that I'm not just going straight to the loudest voices in the room. Um, and, I, and I really try to make a concerted effort to um, find the people who aren't quote unquote shouting. Um, and, and, and by that I mean like, if, let's say I'm covering a meeting, I'm not necessarily gonna go to the, to the person who's biggest and loudest with the biggest sign. Like I'm gonna try to talk to that person in the back of the room mm -hmm. um, who hasn't said anything but might have a lot of feelings on the issue. Right, um, right. And so, that's something that it's also really important that I've got people in the audience reminding me about. Mm, yeah. And thank you both for your work. You all definitely wouldn't be invited here if I didn't think that you were doing the the work that I would like to model with our journalists. And um, as far as like radio and writers, could you name a couple of black journalists that you follow here in Richmond? Sure. Malinor is um, a reporter who covers the General Assembly for the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Mm -hmm. um, here, My good friend, Soraya Wintersmith, worked for VPM for quite some time covering the General Assembly. She's now in Boston. She uh, covered Elizabeth Warren's campaign. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. Roberto, you want to chime in? Yeah. Well, I mean, shout out to Michael Paul Williams. Michael Paul always. Williams. Yep. Um, he's been at it for like 30 years, yeah. better than anybody else. Um, and I do want to give a shout out to Yasmin Jama when we ah. talk about covering RRHA. Yeah. Um, I cover City Hall. It's hard enough with the amount of public meetings that we have to figure out what's going on. Who are you talking um, RRHA is even harder because there aren't a lot of public meetings and everything seems to be, from my outside perspective, a little shady. Mm -hmm. um, so <laughs> Yasmin Jama sort of took that on from me and Woo! she is killing it. Killing working it. Working with activists, um, covering the eviction crisis in RRHA. Yes. Um, so shout out to her for that. Definitely. Uh, Brian Palmer. Oh, yeah. Um, International photojournalist. I mean, he freaking won a Peabody, who, which is like the gold standard Oscar of radio for an amazing uh, work that he did on money all along the South, going to Confederate monuments, upkeep. Um, right, and how much how they get funded and what other spaces for histories don't, right? How much money we are actually continuing to put in to maintain white supremacy in our symbols. Uh, Brian Palmer is amazing, and he is the photojournalist that took the picture of Jasmine that you heard in a previous episode that is now featured with BMFA's Changemakers. Um, it's pretty amazing. Uh, thank you all for that. And I, I, I do want to also just notice that we're not still listing a whole list of black reporters, y'all. And, and I asked you all that very specifically to lift the ones here, but also to notice there are not many. We, we named Mel and Michael. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a, it, when you asked me that, I was like, oh, man, I'm, I'm trying to think, especially in the, in the Capitol press corps. No. It's white as hell. It, it is, y'all. So when we have none, we make one. And this is exactly what race capital is. Um, really quickly, 
I can already tell I'm going to do a special episode length for the podcast platform because I don't know how much I'll need to cut out of this. So, but I do want to make sure that we get to talk about our privileges really quickly. Okay, I will go first. Um, so I'm Jace. I will say my privilege is something that I want to touch on that I saw a lot at the General Assembly, which is as a white presenting person, um, I I did not get the same type of flack from the police when I wanted to go watch a subcommittee or a committee hearing or a floor hearing as the community that I work with. Um, and Mallory mentioned holding each other accountable and being transparent in these public spaces. Um, and I just want to say to the police who work at the General Assembly, thank you for what you do. But everyone who walks in that building has rights and it doesn't matter what their status is. Um, and I hope that we can work towards um, treating people more equitably in these forms. And, and what you're saying, I got to see, too, because it was crowded in there. People wanted to have their voices heard. But you coming up and walking with people that some would look and automatically assume that don't have papers or quote unquote belong here. And now, yes, they're in the building, but they can't get in the room. Yeah, everyone belongs in that building. Absolutely. You don't have to have a status to go into that building. Um, and as a white presenting person, that is my privilege that I get to open that door and have that argument. You know, you keep saying white presenting. How do you identify? Uh, so I'm indigenous and also Spanish. Um, and there you have it. Yeah. Perfect product of colonialism. <laughs> Thanks, Chase. My name is Kalia and my privilege would have to be the access to the General Assembly. Mm -hmm. um, so I come from a family that has been in Richmond for centuries. Uh, I don't know that any of us have stepped into the General Assembly until, like, my generation, me. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so that's a pretty big deal. Um, that speaks a lot to transportation to get to the General Assembly, knowing what it is and how it functions, um, and having the language to speak in there and yeah. having that confidence. Um, so I would say my privilege is just really that community uh, putting me on their back um, and giving me that space uh, uh, to grow mm -hmm. so that I'm comfortable going and speaking in uh, support or opposition to a bill um, that maybe that didn't exist for my family before. Clea, I never even thought about that if anybody in my family has ever been in the General Assembly before. Yeah, it was like a big deal every time I went. Wow. It was like, oh, you're back there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it made me really reflect on what that means for me. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. And my privilege that I want to identify this episode is on the fact that I have access to reporters. Just this morning, I, especially with everything that's happening with coronavirus and the legislation, I probably have like one or two reporters, new followers every day. And that just means they want to extract information from me. So I'm going to extract information from them. And it's like an equal sharing thing. And together, if we have good intentions and values, we actually can do some really incredible things for the community. And that's why it's important to lift the folks that are doing the work, as well as to, for me, to just be in community and su support them as well. Um, to be able to just text somebody and say, hey, some Midlow students need some support and need cameras and need people there and to not have to go and be like, I don't know if I can reach anybody. I have those numbers right in my phone, yeah. right? And and that's that's pretty powerful to, to realize that and, and to know that. But also if I ever have questions, I go straight to reporters about things. And so having that access, but also encouraging people to 
also create those relationships with media because if they don't hear our voices, they can't report on it, right? And if they don't know that we're out there, they don't know that they can reach out to us. And I also can tell a lot of times reporters, journalists may not have the social skills of like building those relationships with advocates sometimes. So talk to them, open up, have conversations with them, just like legislators and politicians, reporters are also human. So they can laugh and, and have conversations about other things. Yes, I know, shock, they are human. Um, but no, I just want to thank you all so much for being here. Thank you for all the coverage that you all are doing. This is amazing. And um, just keep it up. Keep answering my text. Um, <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, and uh, just, I really appreciate what not just these two, but a powerhouse of journalists and Central Virginia have been doing for the advocate community. We could not have beaten Navy Hill without y'all, 100%. And that is part of the example of how we have to work together. Yes. So thanks so much to everyone. Thanks to listening to Race Capital. Follow us at Race Capital Everything, and we'll catch y'all next time. Yeah.